when you have political and <laughs> yeah. religious and social convictions, it's all embedded within uh, a social <laughs> nexus of control. Literally yeah. everything. Like, have you seen a family? down everybody welcome to owls at dawn we are just two dudes from southern california who studied philosophy politics and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we could bullshit with impunity i am austin hayden and i am troy polidori and this week we're going to be doing the thing that you're not ever supposed to do we're going to talk about covid sorta and and anti-vaxxers and things like that that's that that's how you start a fight man <laughs> we, we like star fights we always start fights okay so i guess it is it's okay but we're gonna do so by looking through the lens of a kind of interesting aperture i think on the whole issue we're gonna look at the philosophy a little bit of Giorgio agamben um, from the angle of a critical piece that was written by a very well-known agamben translator and scholar by the name of adam kotzko who we've probably mentioned multiple times on this podcast as he had a, a really large influence on us when we were in graduate school right um his book yep. zizek and theology yep. was fucking massive right yeah, I mean, it's not massive in terms of a tone, but massive in terms of impact. Yeah. 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 And then <laughs> a different was, way, a different way of doing theology and religious studies. Yeah. Definitely. And back in the day when blogs were all the rage uh, amongst the young grad school community, um, his blog, On und für Sich, um, was, and I guess it's still going, which is great, but it was super popular and it was kind of like a hotbed for great discussion about all things related to kind of political philosophy, political theology, um, and things of that nature. So, uh, yeah, so we're going to talk about this article that he wrote kind of critically engaging with Agamben, who um, has come out in the past recent a couple of years with some pretty um, controversial remarks around um, comparisons that he's making to uh, state intervention and the restrictions that have been imposed as them being kind of compared to um, like uh, activities from Nazi Germany and um, basically kind of like talking about how, you know, the, the virus is more like a flu and that the measures have been kind of um, disproportionate in relation to the threat. And um, the question is, is does this kind of sully his philosophy does this sully his theoretical work or what is this does this shed new light on his theoretical work or what should we say and and is there any validity in what Agamben's saying in his comparisons and things like that and Kotzko wrote a really kind of like nice kind of almost um kind of like a biographical I mean what would you even call it how would you describe the the article I, I mean it honestly feels a bit like like Kotzko trying to trying to ascertain or determine for himself mm. what this means for Agamben's legacy, not in the sense of like his reputation or whatever, but in terms of the, the legacy of his work. Like if, if someone has a way of applying their theoretical work that they feel very strongly flows from their theoretical work, but you think sounds batshit crazy and don't understand how it does, mm. that's an that's an important tension, right? Because you, the person is an authority on their own work and how it ought to be applied. And so wrestling with how to do that, and that's a common thing in philosophy, right? I mean, yeah. nearly every modern philosopher um, on, on any uh, philosophical or political stripe said some racist, sexist, you know, shit. <laughs> mm. And so you have to think about like, okay, given that this is the case, 
is there a way that we can connect what they what they how they applied the like the empirics of their philosophy with the theoretical stuff and to flow neatly or is it more of a misapplication that we can mm. judge as being a little bit more of a sign of the times kind of thing and just more about ignorance than it is like a proactive promoting of like theoretical I don't know evil if you can call it that um, <laughs> yeah so I, I thought honestly I wasn't super excited about talking about this just because. I don't have a, a huge stake in the Agamben world, but after reading the article, I I feel like it actually helped me uh, situate some things in my mind about the kind of Heideggerian, Schmidtian, Agambenian nexus. Not that they mm. all agree with each other, but um, I've always had some misgivings there. I think I've not like had a revelation or anything, but it solidified at least one or two things for me that I'm curious to talk with you about. Cool. Okay. Um, well, we'll probably start off with that then on the other side of the uh, shitty minute. Um, uh, of course, though, that's just kind of a little teaser for the main segment. Before we get into that, we got to get into the shitty minute. But before we get into the shitty minute, I just want to cover some quick admin stuff. You know, make sure you follow us on Twitter and on Insta, owls underscore at underscore Dawn. You can also email us, owls at dawnpodcast at gmail.com. And of course, if you can, if you've got some pennies that you can throw our way to help us pay our amazing producer who is just running this shit with the, her art that she's been making um, for the uh, thumbnail nails and things like that has been mwah, chef kiss um killer it's yep. fucking killer thank you maddie we love the work that you're doing we really appreciate you so if you can help us out please go to patreon.com slash owls at dawn that's patreon.com slash owls at dawn or there's the link down below but let's get into the shitty minute now this is the segment of the episode where one of us gets to rant and rave about whatever it is that's pissing us off so troy what has got you down brother so you obviously are familiar with the um, English punk band Idols, yes? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we've talked about them several times in the podcast before. Um, their their first two records um, from, I think, five and three years ago, something like that, uh, Brutalism and Joy is an Act of Resistance, respectively, I think are two of the, of the best punk or post-punk records of the last decade. Um, and after those first two records, they were kind of seen as like, okay, they're the band that everyone points to as like, not only are they musically kind of on the forefront of this genre or the resurgence of this genre, but they're also kind of culturally at the, at the vanguard, right? Because mm -hmm. they represent, they have all the, uh, the curiosity of, of like, you know, late seventies English punk, right. But also have, uh, a sort of importantly, um, what would you call it? Like they're, they're politically minded and not in like a sex pistols way of like, you know, fuck the queen or whatever. Um, they're woke. Although they do, they, they, they would they're, say fuck the, fuck the queen. They're, they're also they, woke, right? Yeah. They're a little woke. Yeah. <laughs> but, but especially in like the first record, it's, it's a little subtle, right? It's, it's not like you could, you could like hear the wokeness coming off of the page. Maybe, maybe you could, I don't know, but it didn't seem quite that way. The, the, the sort of, uh, the aesthetic uh, quality of it was much more in the, the kind of musical curiosity, right? And then the second record, it's a little bit more obvious. Like the writing song is very clearly about like pro-immigration and like pro-trans mm. and uh, it's, it's screaming off the page. It's, it, it couldn't be more obvious um, that they have this sort of uh, political stripe punching through the music, right? And in fact, kind of melding with the furiosity to the point where it's kind of a joyous furiousness, right? And that's clear from the title of that record, Joy is an Act of Resistance. Like it's combining punk fury with 
um, a kind of pro-social joy or whatever. And I think mm. very well accomplished in that record. And then the third record came around, um, and it was less well received. Um, I think mostly because musically it just didn't have anywhere near the the level of ideas as the mm. first two records. It came out pretty soon after, right in the early stages, I believe, of the pandemic. Yeah, because they were um, releasing they were releasing all those music videos of them just like driving around fucking Bristol and shit, right? I don't remember that actually. Oh, didn't they just like they had oh, all yeah, these? Oh yeah, 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 yeah just, They do have a lot of videos where it looks like that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. It's just like them with a camera, just because they're like, well, everything's shut down, so it's just kind of like them, just their daily life. You know, there was like one where it's like they're all in the car with their parents. Each of them is like with their parents or something like that. Yeah, I don't know. But yeah, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, and then they ended up getting into some, um, some like internet fights with. Um, I can't remember the band name. It's the it's the kind of talky post-punk band. Like the, the two guys, both English, both kind of, you know, look like chavs. And um, they do like spoken word over hip hop beats, but it's got kind of a punk edge. I can't remember the band name. They're a really yeah. good band. Um, and they were, they're kind of a more working class English band. They were criticizing idols because idols is, you know, they, they seem to come from the same the same place culturally, like they're working class English dudes, right? I think a lot of the guys in Idols are kind of, you know, in recovery and stuff like that. They're a little older. They're not young, um, probably in their like late 30s, early 40s, even though they're a newer band. Um, and so they were criticized for kind of talking down to kind of working class people mm. uh, and promoting sort of like bourgeois values um, and not being of sort of solidarity with working class people. And so that was kind of the, the initial form of the backlash, right? And then the lyrics over the last two records have become much, even more, less so on this new record, actually, but in the, the third record, very, very much in the same vein as the second record where, you know, the wokeness is kind of, you know, screaming off of the page, right? Mm. And so you get this kind of feeling now that the backlash has happened to idols. They're no longer really seen as like on the forefront of the vanguard of, of punk rock in England or internationally. And now the label cringe has been applied to them. And you know oh, that... No. That when you get when you get the label of cringe, that never comes off, right? <laughs> like once you've got it, it's just eternally applied to you. You'll never get out of it. You'll never be able to do anything right anymore. You're just cringe. It's the one word rejection, which requires no explanation, right? It's just the immediate. You make me feel this way. This way is bad. So you are bad. End of story. <laughs> no argument necessary. Right. No counter arguments can be presented, right? right. Once you've been labeled cringe. Um, and there's a sense in which there's a truth to that because they're very earnest, right? And part of part of cringe, like a necessary element of cringe, necessary but insufficient, right, is earnestness. You have to be earnest to be cringe. Um, and they're very earnest. That's very clear, right? But what I'm confused about, what makes me kind of angry about this is not any sort of the, the descriptors of idols because a lot of it's true, probably not to the extent that people label them as cringe or earnest or whatever. I think they're a little bit more nuanced than people give them credit for. But that said, there is definitely this element to them. My, what I'm upset about is the idea that this is not just exactly what punk rock is and has always been. It's like, it's especially aging punks that seem to believe that they were never cringe, that they've never done anything that's regrettable, that they were never earnest, that are always kind of ironic and sarcastic or whatever, right? And there's certain elements to that, right? But there's like, there's an earnestness to always having to be sarcastic and ironic too, right? That's its own kind of earnestness, which can end up being cringy. Mm. And 
punk rock has had a long history of doing shit like that. It's been cringe in a lot of ways. I mean, go back and like watch shit that the Sex Pistols did. A lot of yeah. it's cringe as fuck, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, the Sex Pistols are also like super overrated, but that's just another story. Um, the Clash too. I mean, The Clash is probably the band that Idols is, is most similar to in terms of where, at least in their first two records, not sound-wise, but in terms of how they kind of occupied a certain vanguard, right? Hmm. And there was backlash on on The Clash too. Although I think that The Clash probably um, were even more nuanced than, than Idols and probably were able to um, like avoid those criticisms even better. Uh, but that said... The point is just punk has always been cringe, right? Because there's a level of earnestness that's always been involved in punk, right? Even though like screaming, you know, anti-authority um, anarchism stuff has been pretty cringe in large part because of its its earnestness and its sort of anger and fury, right? Mm. And so what I'm wondering, I'm curious what you think about this, this whole diatribe, but especially this notion, it's whether, so if punk has always been to some extent cringe and involves a level of earnestness, Always, even if it's an ironic form of it, right? The real issue for me seems to be, can you be punk and also have a kind of uncritical identification with dominant social norms? Because that seems to be the issue where idols seems cringiest in some respect, right? Is taking these kind of woke social norms and celebrating them in the form of punk rock. So that's where I'm wondering, like, I don't think that they're fully uncritical of that stuff, right? And that's certainly not the only thing they do. But there's some element of that, right? Mm. Even if those dominant social norms happen to be good ones. So that's that's not even the question, right? Because mm. maybe some of these emerging social norms that they're identifying with are good ones, or at least in some respect are good. Um, can you be punk and accept or identify un- kind of uncritically with dominant social norms, maybe even good ones? What do you think? Is that possible? I mean, that's where like Blink One Eighty Two was, right? <laughs> they were, they were, they were punk, right? But it was all about like middle class yuppie angst, but it wasn't actually contesting anything socially or politically. It was more like, fuck, I just, I just want to like, I, I don't know, like skate, or I just want to go to the party, or I just want to like be able to have fun with my friends, or I just want to kind of express myself or telling stories. But is that is that even punk? Like, is that even punk anymore? Well, well you, you've made the point on this podcast, and I agree with you about this, that as much as like mid-90s pop punk wasn't political explicitly, it kind of was yeah. in the way that you describe it as being a playing a part in your own life of like, I need to get out of the restrictive, domineering norms that govern my little town community. Yeah. Right? And that's why I got to go skate. Skating is actually kind of anti-authority, right? Sure. Because it's occupying public space with your skateboard, usually, in a way that is technically, like, or quasi-illegal. Um and so that that itself, it's not explicitly political, like, in the big, in the macro sense, right? But it is kind of socio-political in that way. And it's kind of, you know... It's questioning social norms in a way. Yeah, yeah. It reminds me of um, when we had Lars Iyer, uh, Lars Iyer on and we talked about like uh, Nietzsche and the Burbs, right? And how mm. when you're like trapped in this suburban life of the the reproduction of capitalist 
I, I don't even want to say hegemony, but like the homogeneity that everything is the same, like Byung Chul Han talks about, right? Like everyone drives the same car and they wear the same clothes and their affectation is all the same and they go to the same places. And it's like, what the fuck? It's just, there's this numbness and you're like, I just need to feel something. And so the retreat into music and into loud music and into fast music, even that, even if you're singing about how you want to come to a party, like I'm thinking of that Blink song where he's like, do you want to come to a party? My friends pick me up in a truck at 1130 or whatever it is, right? And it's like he's <laughs> he's singing about going to a party and then it's like sing a girl at the party and, and stuff like that, right? It's like, like even that is still like they're seeking for something. They're seeking to feel something and, and they're singing about day-to-day activities, but it just doesn't have the larger intentional political uh, consciousness, you might say. But there's still, there's a stirring there, right? There's a stirring and that stirring to me is the inability of capitalism to enclose desire or the inability of capitalism to enclose um, certain forms of rationality, right? And so that's the kind of return of the repressed and it comes out in different ways. Um, but the problem is, is when it comes out, it might be recoded, you know, in very kind of like Deleuze and Guattari in sense. Yeah. It might be, it might be recoded in, in a, like a nice, um, what, what's, what's, um, Tom Waits song, chocolate Jesus. It might be like a candied version, right? <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a, yeah. it's a tastier version of that kind of sentiment, right? So you just get like a little, a little chocolate, a, a little chocolate version of that angst, you know? And so then it kind of loses a little bit of its potency, but it doesn't mean that the, the flows or the lines of flight aren't still there. They're, that, that excess is still there, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think, punk isn't supposed to be the grand synthesis of anything, right? It's supposed to be the momentary and the primal, the primal scream, right? Yeah. That that's, that's antithetical to some dominant social norm. That tends to be the function that it plays. Right. Um, even if that, that antithesis is not very nuanced, um, doesn't ever attempt to like take that anywhere or or produce any grand synthesis out of it. It's just that momentary ephemeral antithesis. Right. And so the question then is like, does idols do that or in not doing that by just identifying with the thesis, then they're in a sense, not really punk. And that's interesting to me. I think there's something to that, but I think what really gets me is, and maybe, um, I think you really got to dig into idols discography to, to get that, you know, they have the, their big singles that are like these pro immigration songs and and pro trans songs and whatever, like stuff like that. Yeah, definitely. And great song, right? Great. But then also, they're not just like raw, raw leaders for emerging social norms. They're also like dudes who are in recovery. And probably even more of their songs are about like alcoholism and recovery and relapsing and stuff like that. And those don't become singles usually, but that's that's an even more dominant theme, I think, in their music. And so when you see the sort of interplay between those two parts of them, right? Like the, oh my God, I've relapsed again. This fucking sucks. I hurt people around me. Life is awful, right? And then also, but I have hope because like there are things in the world that matter, like the people that I love who happen to be immigrants and and women and trans people and whatever, right? Um, Like that's, that to me is where they really find in like the whole album sphere, where they really find an identity that that seems more meaningful. So like, I guess my way of thinking about this criticism of idols is like, yeah, if all you know are their singles, then it's kind of cringy and not really all that punk rock, ultimately, <laughs> right? Um, but as a whole, maybe they even kind of like they evolve beyond 
punk rock and the term post-punk is applied to them not musically, but also maybe in like a conceptual space as well, because they, they're kind of moving beyond just being this, you know, antithesis of just having yeah, anger. It's meta, meta uh, modern, meta modern punk or post postmodern punk or something like that. Like the, the new sincerity of punk, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and importantly, new sincerity, not just meaning, Oh, we're going to be happy now. Right. And promote good things, mm. but also like, we're going to talk about shit that's real, even in our own personal lives. And we're not going to pretend that it's all right or that it's solved in any way by like having the right politics or whatever. Yeah. And part of the reason why it might come across as cringe, too, isn't the fault of the advocacy for trans causes or for immigration rights or immigration reform or whatever. But it's because capitalism is so adept at enclosing those desires that that it can code them so that when they're expressed in any form, it's hard for us to separate how there might actually be something truly revolutionary in the call for those those activities, right? And so the problem is, is when we hear somebody that's like advocating for like non-binarism or something like that, you're like, oh, you're just so woke and Nike's going to be uh, on, on, you know, they're advocating for non-binarism too. So it's just like, you know, a corporate, corporate shilling. And you're like, no, I mean, like, sure, like they're opportunists and those, those, uh, those tendencies of like recoding are always there or re-territorialization are always there. But that doesn't negate the fact that there are true lines of flight, that there are two contestations to the status quo in the call for trans rights and in the call for immigration reform or in the call for acceptance of refugees, you know, or in the call for the universality of humanity. Like one of my favorite things about that Nanny D- Danny Nadelko song is the idea that it opens up to a universalism, right? Like I'm Danny Nadelko mm. and you are and you are and you are and fucking, you know, it's like, like there's something about that that is just kind of in itself, it seems radically excessive of anything that can be coded, but that doesn't negate the fact that much of it can also be coded. And so I think the cringe comes in that contradiction, that, that tension there that reveals that like that reveals, okay, so yeah, sure. It's being enclosed, but then we we can't neglect the fact that, you know what, there's still things that are excessive, you know, outside of that. So, so yeah, I think that's kind of something that we got to consider as well, you know? Yeah. There, there is a kind of like, you remember new Christian energy, What's that? Or like new convert energy. Oh, yeah, you yeah, You know, when yeah. someone would, yeah, yeah, would become yeah. a convert a little yeah. later in life and they yeah. get this like – they'd be really pumped up about it to the yeah. point where it was a little uncomfortable to be around. Like the, they, they haven't sat with the like awkwardness and the like the boringness of the whole thing. Yeah. There's, there's kind of that too where like they're, they're latecomers to being woke and so it's like new and energizing for them and not boring. Uh, and that, that, that can be pretty cringy too, right? But then also that makes you realize that like – it, they're working class dudes who haven't always lived a life like this. And like yeah. in recovery, they've kind of discovered a level of community that they're excited about. Yeah. And if like, if you're, and the criticism of course, you know, from the leftist punk bands is not that these positions are bad, like being pro trans or being, you know, pr- for gender equality or whatever. It's more that it's like a, a tone of, of condescendingness to yeah. working class English people is the problem. But like, they're very much of that community and they write a lot of songs that are about the underside of that, of living that kind of life from yeah. their own perspective. Right. So they're very self-critical in that way and very sort of open in an important way that I think makes it easier to take the, the maybe more cringier moments. Yeah. Is it Sleaford mods, by the way, is that what they're called? That's it. Sleaford mods. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got a buddy who, out who here. Who also a great band, by the way. Yeah, I, I got a buddy out here. He's an English dude, and he was the one who actually brought to my attention the kind of battle between them because I had kind of just uncritically enjoyed Idols because I hadn't really followed their music um, after the second album, Joy is an Act of Resistance. I, like, I'd seen the YouTube videos being released, but I didn't love the stuff they were putting out, so I was kind of like, that's okay. I really enjoy that that second album, so I'm just going to kind of hunker down into that shit. And so I hadn't paid attention to the kind of drama online, and he was like, oh, bro, have you heard about these critiques and and he comes like this is my buddy alex i don't know if you are listening to the show alex but what up alex um his dad's like a union member was like good friends with like billy bragg and shit like that you know so his dad's like a hardcore <laughs> you so that's like kind of his background that he comes from and so he's like uh he's like oh yeah like i guess there's some critiques of them for kind of like um I don't know about virtue signal or is it like wearing the mask of working class politics while not living it or something? And so I was like, oh, shit, I didn't know anything about it. So I had heard about some of that controversy through him, what, maybe about a year ago. So, yeah, it's just kind of interesting stuff, I guess. But, yeah. Yeah, I should just add to kind of end off here that, like, I don't know all the details of of the of the, like the infighting and the when it was happening online the tensions and stuff so i mean i i, I could be speaking out of, out of my ass here a little bit but i'm more just thinking about conceptually like what it means to be cringe what are the right, right, right. what are the ne- necessary constituents of it and can you be cringe but still kind of escape maybe the the critical moment of that right there's something about that um there, there's something somewhat redemptive about being cringe i think that mm. maybe we could we could salvage but also, like you can only take so much cringe. It's tough. <laughs> Amen, brother. Amen. All right, sick. Well, let's move into the uh, main segment here and start talking about uh, Gombin and COVID and philosophers and theory and practical application and whatever else is going to kind of uh, wherever else this conversation is going to go. Yeah. Hell yeah. Okay. So you said in the kind of teaser that the, reading this article, you were kind of like, oh, I'm, I'm not super interested in the idea. Um, but then it kind of brought up a couple of things for you. So what what did it in particular bring up for you? Well, look, before we get to that, maybe we should summarize what's going on in the debate here a little bit. You, you did a little bit in the teaser. Sure. But it might help to, to set it up here before we get into sort of uh, evaluative or, or critical comments a little bit. Okay. Um, so as you said um, in the teaser, this all kind of started when uh, Giorgio Gambin um, made some blog posts that argued that coronavirus restrictions in Italy and, and elsewhere in Europe were sort of irrationally based and out of control, that they they basically placed an unspecified level of risk as being more important than any sort of personal or social or political convictions someone might have. Um, a kind of totalitarianism, I think it's fair to say, is what he's kind of pointing at, right? Yeah. Um, which really goes back to, you know, Homo Soccer, which I read, I don't know, 15 years ago? <laughs> yeah. Long ass time ago, like in college. And I don't think I understood a whole lot of it because I was one of the, that was one of the original, oh, you're into continental philosophy as like a cool theology kid? Yeah. Read Homo Soccer because it's short. And it's, it's written in kind of a cool way that you're going to find interesting, um, but obviously didn't have the sort of uh, the knowledge of the surrounding literature. And that would be enough to really explicate the content of the book very well. And so you end up just kind of, I think for a lot of people, this is the case, taking some very generic points out of Homo Sacer as being the thesis. And that's kind of it. But then also like, again, Ben's own writing style speaks to that because he's not exactly arguing for a very specific thesis. It's very general um, and, and 
uses lots of metaphor to make his points, right? Especially the important yeah. points. Yeah, and but and the big we, concept. Yeah, yeah, you know, go ahead. Yes, yeah, so the big concept in Homosake is that of bare life, right? And so here, here's how Kotzko in the article summarizes it. I think he summarizes it very well. He says, Agamben argues that political power in Western societies is founded on the decision to include some people within the protections of law and exclude others, stripping them of their human privileges and reducing them to a state he designates as bare life. Those who are ex- reduced to bare life are not expelled from society, but included in it as a subhuman class that is excluded from the formal protections of the law, but is nonetheless foundational to the social order. Right, so the notions of inclusion and exclusion are important there, and of course the notion of exclusion being not from the society, but from the formal protections of the law while in society. So creating a sort of important hierarchy within society that's necessary to sustain the social order itself, right? That seems to be the basic idea. So very general, and I think maybe we can talk about later how I think it's 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 generality is part of why people on the left and the right can use this idea pretty effectively. Mm, yeah. <laughs> um, even though clearly the right is much more hierarchically focused than the left ought to be, right? Um, but anyway, yeah, so that's kind of a, a general idea. And then you can see how that can be pretty easily applied to COVID stuff, right? I mean, the obvious connection and the one that Agamben is always kind of noted for is like the Nazi Shoah, right? The Holocaust as being an example of individuals within a society, staying within the society, within the social order, having a place, but one that's subhuman, right? And that that subhumanness is means sort of taking away any notion of, of freedom from them to occupy this subhuman role where they're eventually exterminated. And I know later theorists have mentioned that like slavery is probably the the most ubiquitous throughout history case of homo sake, right? The slave is very, very literally necessary for the social order to sustain itself, right? Uh, but only insofar as a person is excluded from any formal protections, almost any formal protections, according to the law, right? So chattel slavery seems like even even better example, I would think, than, than the Holocaust. Uh, and that gets applied to COVID restrictions, I guess, by Gambon, because there's a sense in which COVID restrictions, I guess his point is medicalize life, right? In the yeah. sense of, of bare life, it's survival is all that matters. And we're going to restrict personal and social and political freedoms for the sake of merely saving life. Yeah. And that seems to be the connection that he makes. And I guess I didn't realize this, but a lot of the, the examples that he uses, even in homo Sacer, way back in the day were medical examples. Um, and not just the kind of obvious political ones like the Holocaust and, and others. So I guess that's always kind of been on um, Agamemnon's mind, this notion of, of of thinking about life as merely survival. And that's the thing that, that uh, a government ought to control. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, just to, if people are interested, so we'll put the link to this article um, down below, but if you want also just to, if, I mean, if you really want to get into it, uh, Agamben's had this blog that he's been, that he's been consistently posting on, um, for a long time. And I guess throughout the, throughout the kind of COVID pandemic, he was uploading, um, a lot of pieces that Kotzko himself had translated, right. Or had been asked to translate. I think he did a couple of them. Right. And then, yeah. um, 
Um, and then he's kind of questioning, you know, kind of what is his role actually, I think in this, which is, you know, I, I, I always enjoy when academics give us a little glimpse into the kind of their own struggles and their own, their own questions about what they're doing with their work and their own responsibility in the public sphere and things like that. Um, but if you're interested, uh, I guess the title of the first post was called like the invention of an epidemic and um, talks about this is from a Gombin who talks about how um, the reaction to the virus was frenetic, irrational and entirely unfounded and um, basically went on to say that, you know, it, that this the, that, that this virus is no more dangerous than the flu. And he made some comparisons to um, how he says, you know, it's obvious. So he's Italian and he says, it's obvious that Italians are disposed to sacrifice practically everything. The normal conditions of life, social relationships, work, even friendships, affections, and religious and political convictions to the danger of getting sick. And so the idea was that precisely like you were saying earlier, Troy, about how the primary concern is that he is worried that with the kind of medicalization of the human experience that it reduces life to simply um, it reduces life by cutting us off from the value of social relationships, the value of of work, the value of friendships, affection, um, religious, political um, identities and convictions. It, all of those things become arbitrary or, or unimportant in the decision-making, which is just simply to save people because um, the danger of getting sick is, uh, is, is the kind of like prime danger, right? And I do think there's also something in here that, that Kotzko doesn't specify, but when I read Agamben, who's in like this post-Heideggerian post-Heideggerian stream, we might say, um, mm -hmm. where Heidegger is eminently critical of technology, right? He calls it the age of technology in um, Identity and Difference, which was this kind of like later essay. Um, and there's, you know, there's a lot of, of exploration in Heidegger of the problems of what we might call the reduction of life towards technologization, right? Um, you know, you have like the atomic age is something else that Heidegger writes about, you know, which at that point, this is writing in the wake of post-World War II and, and the atomic bomb. And the, if we reduce things to technologization, what can that lead to? Like it can lead to something like, um, you know, the development of, of atomic bombs that can be used to destroy, right? Or the development of technological um, devices that can separate, alienate, um, abstractify, for lack of a better term. Is that a word, abstractify? Um, to de-realize. De <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah. To de-realize things, you know, um, in, a, in a sort of more possible robust sense or for Heidegger, a poetic sense. And I think Agamben inherits a lot of that, right? So like he, he inherits that Heideggerian legacy. He also inherits a little bit of like a Foucauldian legacy with the kind of concerns about disciplinary power, biopolitical management, right? So he's concerned with how it is that, that, life is governed and how it's managed by state forms, by governmental forms, by those in power. And in that sense, when I, when I was reading about his critiques of, um, of, of the COVID measures, I understood it in the context of more than anything, his worry about the dominance of technological rationality and what it leads to is that it leads to a foreclosing of thought and 
and then it and it creates we might say um, a particular set of very small metrics or parameters that become the dominating ones that 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 dictate how life ought to be lived. And so the pandemic measures, insofar as they were just simple expressions of um, a technological rationality, they could be justified in doing whatever they wanted to do via this slow encroachment of, um, of control, of suppression, and of the kind of recoding, we might say, of what it means to, to live in a healthy life, a societal life. And that is just a life where you don't get sick. And I think that's where the fear ultimately comes from. And, and in that respect, in that respect, I too echo, yeah, echo. I, I agree with that. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Up to and, that point, got no problem with that. I mean, yeah. we've talked, and I have a, a kind of long, uh, like screed about utilitarianism as being That's right. yeah. sort of the, the, the instantiation of this kind of technological rationality and that stuff that I, I'm fully in agreement, in agreement with the kind of Heideggerian, again, Bennian, Foucauldian line, right? I mean, Foucault most explicitly points to like Benthamite utilitarianism as being this form of, of biopolitical kind of governmentality or whatever the terms he uses for, I don't remember. Um, but that, that I'm in full agreement with as a, as a, as a sort of historical lineage, right? Yeah. Um, and of, and of a kind of a necessary mode of critique that we should have in the background at all points during so-called state of emergencies, right? Like that has to exist. You can't just uncritically accept actions in, in states of emergency, even if they're, even if you're really convinced that it is an emergency, obviously a big problem is the states of emergency that like from Agamben's book, State of Exception, which ended up being like a, a prophecy for the Bush years, right? Um, well, the problem was they, they weren't really emergencies. Like they were declared emergencies so that certain powers could be used. But of course, there could be real emergencies of which a, a you know global pandemic of a fast, a quickly transmitting virus would be a, a really obvious example of a real emergency, right? Hmm. Um, even in the midst of a real emergency, it's, I think, super important to have a sort of mode of critique that hovers in the background at all times that points this out, especially when we're still governed by sort of neoliberal rationality, which does in many ways push towards this medicalization and technologization of life um, that's to be governed in this way. And we've even talked about in other spheres, even just last week, talking about Station Eleven, this notion of survival being insufficient, right? Um, and that, I think, dovetails in an important way um, with the the notion of like being reduced to bare life, of being survival being the only thing that matters, and then once once that's guaranteed, everything else is um, sort of ephemeral, right? Right? As far as what the the government's job is. Um, so yeah, I mean, up to that point, I, I don't have a lot of criticisms. Mm. Yeah, Are you I on think. The same page? Yeah, yeah, a hundred percent. And then just because we're talking about emergency and the state of emergency, we also ought to mention that um, one of his other huge influences, um, his, his muse, we might say, is uh, Walter Benjamin, who um, in concept mm -hmm. of history, I'm actually I'm looking at it right now. Um, in like the eighth eighth aphorism or however the heck you how you talk about the structure of this book but it's uh, he says that the tradition of the oppressed teaches us that the state of emergency in which we live is not the exception but the rule and I think Agamben really believes that it's the perpetuation of the state of emergency as being the norm 
that is the issue. And I think part of the um, problem with diagnosing or, or one of the central features of like kind of diagnosing, if you will, the state um, that that Agamben is concerned with is that it is precisely um, manufacturing these emergencies as being perpetual and constant so that it can justify its 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 action, right? So that it can justify um, its own validity and, and maintain its legitimacy, we might say, right? Which is why then Agamben's source of power that he kind of like advocates for is like a, a withdrawal kind of power. I mean, he's much more of an anarchist. He talks about like destituent power versus constituent power, right? Like constituent power is like the, the, the power of the state that is kind of like self-legitimized and it's preformed and it can justify itself because it sets the terrain um, and sets the the parameters on, on, on what can be said and done and how things can be said and done. And for Agamben, you can't, you can't really contest that power, right? Like, um, with a sort of with sort of equal measure. So it's like got to be a completely different qualitative form of power. And so I think that's kind of important for us to kind of consider as well is is that issue of the norm, the normality for him of understanding the state of emergency, that it's the rule, not the exception. Yeah, and that, that kind of speaks to the the point of like, okay, so if if there are these states of exception, and they're so sort of delegitimized, because they're obviously being used for um, power overreach or whatever, right? Then does that mean that returning to the normal where there are states of exception is therefore legitimate? <laughs> because n no, the answer is obviously is no, coming from the sort of even from like the Heideggerian kind of background that Agamben has, right? Um, and so that's when Agamben kind of falls into like poetic stuff about like playing with the law, right. having a completely different relation to law than the one that we currently have and stuff like that. And it's all very esoteric and abstract and poetic and there's not a whole lot you can actually say as far as a political prescription of, about it and i think again is honest about that like he's not pretending he has answers in that vein he's very much more about sort of analyzing the genealogies and histories of of concepts than he is about offering political prescriptions for those things right yeah but you mentioned the word that i want to talk about which is legitimacy mm. right legitimacy is the relation that an individual has to their social world, right? Um, or an individual that is considering the justification of, of um, their social world and of their place in the social world, right? And it seems to me, and these are kind of incohate thoughts, so I don't, I don't know that they're, they're really going to um, have the fine-grained detail that they probably need to since I was just thinking about this today. But it seems to me like, yeah, I, I'm, I, I take a lot from the, the Heideggerian and Gambenian Foucauldian kind of mode of critiquing kind of the dominant forms of liberal political thought, right? I think a, a lot of that stuff, if not nearly all of it, um, has credence, right? But the issue for me then is, okay, I totally agree with you, especially about the criticisms of like utilitarianism and sort of empiricism and the political modes that follow from those, those um, movements out of the Enlightenment and stuff, right? But... Um, does that, is there like any sense in which a political order or maybe even just a policy or a law can be legitimate? Because there any way that, that could happen? Because it seems to me like a Gamban at that point gets into like poetic stuff and Heidegger talks about like being towards death. And for me, I wrote a paper on this when I took a seminar on, on, um, being in time that, there's kind of a sense for Heidegger that being towards death just automatically is authentic or legitimate. Mm. And there's no explanation for why. And I'm like, 
seems to me like being towards death could be, end up in, in a lot of terrible modes. <laughs> it's really indeterminate. Um, and so I'm not very convinced there's, there's very much of a, of a sort of explication of the concept of legitimacy that happens here in any important way. It's really the critical mode that's doing all the work here. Um, and it kind of follows from this kind of Schmidtian, right? Both, mm. um, Agamemnon has a lot of influence from Schmidt, right? Not in the sense of like, he's following a Schmidtian line of thinking, but he takes Schmidt as like the, the enemy who properly conceives of the stakes or whatever, right? Mm. And for Schmidt, you have this like inherently agonistic, um, social order all the way down, right? Collective self-government in a way that enlightenment thinkers really are pushing towards isn't possible, right? Or at least has never actually been approximated or something like that, right? Depending upon how strong the criticism is. And so, and this all kind of flows into like Agamben's current position, which seems to be, I don't know if he's explicitly said this, but public health as a concept is inherently illegitimate, it seems like, for Agamben. Hmm. The very fact that he keeps going towards these public health measures as just like explaining them, explaining what they do, it just the the illegitimacy falls out of it, right? The very notion of public health seems illegitimate, but the fact that health could be anything but an individual's prerogative, like if the public is doing anything, it's, it's therefore totalitarian and illegitimate, right? Mm. Here's a quote from Costco that made me really think this, this was at the core of the issue here. He says in the article, if any action by the state including by state medical authorities, is always intrinsically oppressive, then we have no alternative but to fall back on our own individuality, exactly the libertarian position that the right wing has used for decades to cut off in advance any effort to challenge existing power structures. That's that's legitimacy as being, or the lack of any notion of legitimacy as being the issue, right? It happens with Heidegger and being towards death. It happens with Agamben here, right? If, if there's no possible way we, we could have a legitimate social order or even a legitimate policy within an unjust social order, hmm. which I think is, all, is, is possible, um, then you're only going to fall back on individual notions of freedom. The exact notions of freedom that end up being coterminous with the empiricism, like empiricistic and utilitarian notions of freedom in the first place, the ones you were criticizing. Yeah. Right. So it seems to me like you have to have some positive notion of freedom coming generally, I think, from like the Kantian Hegelian, not from them specifically, but from the lines of, of thought that follow from them, right? Um, Kantian notion of like self-determination and self-government. But then Hegel comes in and says, yeah, but that, that's, not, that's not a purely individual thing. It's a social thing, right? Freedom is realized in determinate social relations with others, right? co-constitution of oneself with others in a social order and co-determination in a political order, right? That's where true freedom is realized. And of course, social orders can be unjust. So you have to have ways to analyze that, determine it, and then excise yourself from unjust social roles. So there is still a role for the individual in that negative sense, right? Mm. But the, the true freedom is not in that. True freedom is not in excising yourself from unjust social orders. That's a necessary constituent of it, but it's not sufficient for freedom. It's it's that plus finding positive freedom in meaningful co-constitutive social roles with others, right? That's freedom. And it seems to me like the Heideggerian, again, Bennian whole nexus there is so afraid that any positive notion of freedom like that is just going to be co-opted 
by all these sort of, you know, negative forms that, you know what, we're just not even going to, we're not even going to theorize any possibility that there, there could be a legitimate social order, right? That people can accept and affirm for themselves in any, with any sort of like rational justification. And if you, if you go down that road, like maybe you're right more often than you're wrong because there's more injustice than there is justice in the world, obviously. Mm -hmm. Right. But then what do you do when we have a situation where like we actually do need to make sacrifices for the betterment of ourselves and others, which it seems to me like, yeah, the virus, like that's the occasion where you do need to do that. And you got to figure out how to do it in a way that's, that's like good and not bad. Then these kind of thinkers don't have much to say, right? They end up sounding a lot like the people that they're criticizing with these sort of really individualistic and deflationary notions of, of individual freedom. Yeah, it's so interesting. So the book that I most recently read from Agamben was The Kingdom and the Glory. And um, did you ever read that? Mm. Yeah. 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 That was the last one I read too, actually. Yeah. The subtitle for people interested is for a theological genealogy of economy and government. And in it, he basically does a sort of like, uh, it's a genealogical and then he kind of makes an analogical um, remark. I mean, maybe not analogical, because maybe that's maybe, maybe a homological um, assessment about governance relating to like um, divine governance and how kind of Western conceptions of of governance map on to or maybe hinge from maybe they participate in we might say even the kind of trinitarian governance of um, of Christian theology. And one of the things that makes me think is is that. Is that I think for Agamben, so that that quote from that quote from from Benjamin about um, the state of exception not being the exception but the rule, is in the context of for the oppressor. I'm sorry, for the oppressed, right? So those who are oppressed, they are constantly under these states of emergency, right? So there's always it's always crisis. We might say. And I think then, so for Agamben to make the positions or to take the positions that he's taking, it's the presumption of um, maybe robust social forms as always already being in crisis because of the perpetual clamoring for legitimacy of um, government. Right. And so it seems to presume a sort of negative notion of freedom that you're talking about. Right. Mm -hmm. That like the only legitimate social forms are those that exist in their like I don't think he would say their natural state, but in 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 their condition that isn't being overcoded by the domination of the government. And what I wonder is, is if that isn't the problematic starting point to begin with. Right. Because he already presumes then the position of the oppressed. He presumes the position of the oppressed insofar as the oppressed exists in a state of what, like radical wild freedom, like or or something like I I know he wouldn't say that. But if you look at if you look at um, in that in that 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 post that he did that was called the invention of the epidemic. It's so interesting. Like one, I think 
And I had this discussion actually with a, a really amazing political economist here in Sydney named Martin Konings, who I've worked with, right? Um, who we've talked about his his work since the inception. I think actually like our one of our first fucking episodes was me recommending his book, The Emotional Logic of Capitalism. So his, yep. his presence has loomed heavy over everything I have said <laughs> since this podcast has begun. Um, but I remember talking with him about Agamben and he basically said, you know, I, I really appreciate some of Agamben's work, he said, but his, and he always just leaves you with nothing, right? I just feel like he leaves you with, with not much, like right when he's getting, what did I think Martin said, like right when he's getting to the point where you feel like, okay, now we're getting into something, he just stops. And I think that, that Martin's frustration kind of maps onto what we're talking about here. And then I'm kind of kind of tie that into what he says, what Agamben says in that that essay, Invention of an Epidemic, when he says, it's obvious that Italians are disposed to sacrifice practically everything. And then when he lists the everything, he talks about like the normal conditions of life, which this is me just then commenting, the normal conditions of life are those that are, you know, kind of coded by the hegemonic logic of capital, <laughs> right? And then he talks about- Yeah, those so aren't necessarily good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then he talks about social relationships. And it's like, but, but you know, like there's so much literature on like social reproduction theory that talks about how our social relationships themselves are financialized and being reproduced by, you know, indebted relationships. And then he talks about work. Well, work, you know, like for an Italian, read your autonomists, man. You know, like work isn't necessarily a, a good thing in the way that it's established under kind of um, the, 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 the logic of capitalist abstraction. And then he talks about friendships and affections. But again, do some work on like psychoanalysis that's critiquing how even our affects are, you know, being like impelled or propelled or compelled by, you know, um, the, the saturation of, of media images that are like produced desire. And then he talks about religious and political convictions. And this is what I wonder. What is it about, like, is he Catholic? And that there's something interesting in, like, the, the, this was the one that, like, when I was reading that, I was like, okay, interesting. Like, maybe we can critique, critique, critique. And then he says, but they're going to sacrifice their religious and political convictions. Now, of course, he's writing in the Italian context, an extremely Catholic culture. So he's talking about how they're going to give those things up in, in the pursuit of just, you know, um, bare life because they don't want to get sick, which is interesting, I think, from from maybe he's trying to draw on a contradiction, right? Like people who claim to be concerned about the Imago Dei and like these kind of more transcendent conceptions of humanity are willing to sacrifice that just because they don't want to get sick because they don't want to die or something like that, right? Which is maybe an interesting thing. But then political convictions, like what are these political convictions that they're willing to suspend? Are they like these like centrist, liberal, kind of like um, Western democratic liberal convictions? Or is it the more like radical revolutionary convictions? And because he doesn't really have a programmatic um, revolutionary um, um, uh, strategy or, or set of theoretical concepts, I think that all of these, this kind of litany that he provides us ends up being really kind of superficial and I don't really know what it is that he's saying is being lost, right? Like, like this this life that the, that the Italians are sacrificing. What is that life? Is it some sort of pure, better life living under centrist, democratic, liberal dominance that kind of characterizes late neoliberalism? Is that is that what is that what it is? And and of course, this isn't me just being like. 
building a straw man because it's like, no, of course he would be critical of that. The problem is, is he doesn't have very much teeth in analyzing those conditions, right? And maybe it's because he doesn't have a really stringent political economic critique or a social economic critique that that he's not able to actually kind of flesh out some of those other issues, you know? Yeah, I mean, the, the issue for me, and I think you hit on the head there, is like, look, if, if every action that every collective action that occurs is on its face illegitimate because in some way like um, cordons off or restricts freedom in this way, then like, guess what the normal order of things is? When you have political and <laughs> yeah. religious and social convictions, it's all embedded within uh, <laughs> a social nexus of control. Yeah. Literally everything. Like, have you seen a family? Do you know what families are like? <laughs> um, yeah. And I guess, yeah, you could be a really extreme anarchist and just be like, yeah, all the different forms of, of, of social or collective action are illegitimate for those who are oppressed by them. Like to some extent that, that that's true, they're, they're, they're sort of arenas for oppression, all of them. Of course they are, right? Um, but if, like, if it's all on its face illegitimate, then you've got nothing to start with. Yeah. There is no point where you're all by yourself. Like that, that's, that's the, um, uh, the, the kind of liberal fantasy that we, we, I thought we were critiquing in the first place that that was possible, right? So it seems to me like, look, it's 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 socially embedded all the way down and it's collective action all the way down. So we got to figure out in what ways that can be legitimate. And then when it doesn't follow that pathway of being legitimate, we critique it using all these same tools that we're using. But we got to have some notion of how legitimacy can be achieved. And it can't be like, these poetic notions of like playing with the law with a whole new relation, like children play with their toys. Like, I don't know what the fuck that means. Mm. And maybe that, maybe that's in a, in an important way poetic because it needs to stoke us to new thought. Like I'm totally open to that idea, right? You don't yeah. have to lay out like a, a whole set of policies or anything. Right. But then, but I, I still don't see how that even speaks to what, what legitimacy would be like, other than saying like, if you play with something, you only do so if you think that you're in a in a, in a, like a legitimating context or a justified context or whatever. Maybe that's there's something there that's important. I, I'm I'm happy to, to like recognize that and think about it. But yeah, I mean the skepticism is not a problem, but like there's a kind of cynicism that's mm. involved with any sort of collective action as being legitimate. That I don't know how we how we get anywhere with that. And it seems like not only do we not get anywhere, but we even open up open up like a, a lane to end up with kind of rightist hyper-individualist thinking, which was part of the, you know, object of critique in the first part, which seems ex like, um, explicitly kind of dangerous. Mm. Yeah. 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 Um, like part of me is just thinking, and I don't know if it's true, but it makes me think that maybe there's even like this little bit of, um, like this, there's almost like this nihilism here where he's kind of like rejecting this world in, in favor of, of some sort of idealized world. And I, I don't think that he would say that. Um, I mean, I think he's read enough Nietzsche to know that that's, you know, um, a certain trap that people can fall into. But it does feel like that there's a real, there's a real fine line between like the, the production of poetic makings and, um, the refusal of what is in the name of kind of like predetermined ideas, right? And and sometimes they're like almost indistinguishable, right? Like 
um, utopian thinking can become domineering um, or it can be kind of powerful and poetic and constructive and productive. And I don't know, in this sense, I feel like he's kind of, um, it, it, he, 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 because maybe he lacks a little bit of an analysis of the kind of like structural and material conditions for lack of a better term, um, in any sort of like robust way, I think that he ends up kind of, kind of like almost, I don't know if there's like a nostalgia or if there's like a fantasy, but it does seem that there is, and this is when you were talking about like how it kind of leans towards like sort of like the rightist ideas, um, which are oftentimes based on like a nostalgia or on some sort of like future possibilities, yeah. some, some sort of image, right? Some sort of fantasy. And so I can't help but wonder if that's, that's something that's there as well. And, and I do think, and I, and it's so interesting because I do, I agree. I think that there is like, you you've talked about kind of like the three evils, right. Of, uh, utilitarian capitalism and empiricism. Right. And I think that, I think that that's very clearly seen in how the, um, how the, 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 the measures in dealing with the, the, the pandemic, um, to, to understand like how they have been um, handled is is being guided a lot by that tripartite. I think in a lot of ways, I think it's a really good um, it's a really good conceptual apparatus to help us diagnose, right? Um, and um, and 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 then it's hard because because then I I, I I I I empathize or I sympathize or I I, I even am in agreement with so much of what he's saying. Um, that I kind of, I, I find myself nodding along with like when I read it so much, I'm like, yeah, it's true. It is true. It is mm. true. It is true. But at the same time, it's like, don't you think that maybe there are political decisions that sometimes we have to take based on what's offered to us in the moment, right? Like we don't have to be big pharma cheerleaders in order to be like, hey, we fucking, we should probably get a vaccine, <laughs> you know, like, and, and just because the political economic structures that currently are in place um, are contaminated doesn't mean that the advocacy of getting people vaccinated and implementing social distancing rules and things like that um, are somehow like, like it doesn't like completely mean that those things are necessarily all bad. It's kind of like they're both bad and good. And so let's do the work of figuring out in what ways contact tracing is probably important and helpful and maybe useful to solve X problems and to address Y issues, but how it's also going to be bad because it also leads to the encroachment of control and, um, you know, uh, further mechanisms for the enclosure of our data and for tracking work. Like it's both and yeah, both can all. be true. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, and I feel like there's like almost like this purity politics that kind of, which again ties into that kind of like rightist fantasy, right? That kind of like the pure world, the pure poetic world where all of our fucking social relationships and work relationships and friendships relationships are just in this state of play and destituent power. We're resisting that. No, man, like that just itself is its own kind of fantasy. Yeah. I mean, if, if, if all you have is some, some fantasy, which cannot possibly be achieved, at least not in anywhere near or medium term, right. Um, then, then everything's going to look like, like an enemy, right? Every action is going to look like the enemy and mm. you can properly, provide the justification for it being so by 
pointing out where it's being misused, right? Where it's following this logic of of um, of like utilitarian control and stuff like that, right? And that those are all, you know, at least partially accurate. But then if you don't have some notion of like, okay, what would a legitimate use of state power look like? You can't then look at the current situation and say, okay, like insofar as me taking this action, like wearing a mask or getting a, a vaccine or, or, you know, following um, testing and tracing protocol or whatever, insofar as, as me doing that and encouraging others to do that is some is in part used by the government in these um, oppressive ways, but also fits and overlaps at the same time with these legitimate uses, right, of collective self-government. Hmm. And so you can say both of those are true. And since literally like protecting the people that are around me is incredibly important, right? Then I'm going to get the vaccine, even though I know that there's some danger involved with like, you know, being part of this scheme by big farm or whatever, even if I know I'm enriching Pfizer, right? Yeah. In the process of doing it, like both those things can be true. And if you don't have this notion, this kind of more ideal notion of like what would legitimate collective action would look like, then you're just only ever going to see the big pharma side of it. And you're not going to have any way of conceptualizing, well, how ought I treat people around me? How ought I engage in collective self-government, right? That's just automatically off the table as being inherently oppressive. And so, yeah, there's just everything's going to look like the enemy at that point. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And here's the thing. I mean, there's something really romantic about it. It's got that like, you know. Camus type of like, let's be a fucking rebel or like the fucking, you know, the beatniks, you know, which I just recently learned. I didn't know this, but apparently like um, like Kerouac and, and a lot of them were really influenced by Oswald Spangler's Decline of the West, which I'm like, oh, yeah, that makes a lot hmm. of sense. Right. Like, you know, this like descent into technologization or whatever it is of, of reality, authenticity slipping away. So we got to just fucking find it through poetry and experimentation and, and kind of like being vagabonds and stuff like that. So the, there is something. And honestly, dude, that that is my like suburban yuppie version of punk rock. OK, like that. That is me. Right. Like mm -hmm. that, that's it. Like just that's it. There's no authenticity. Everything's fucking enclosed. Let me let me find those flows of authenticity. Um, and so there's something really romantic about it. Um, but yeah, I, I think ultimately, like when you start to think more critically through it, it ultimately rings a little hollow. But you know, you know what can be really inauthentic hmm. is, is constantly seeing everything as, <laughs> as a means for which you to escape inauthenticity into authentic living yeah. and have that be the governing maximum of your life that can end up being really inauthentic, mm. <laughs> mm. Which, I mean, a lot of people who kind of try to resuscitate the beatnik lifestyle, it can, it can, and a lot of people who resuscitate punk rock, right, can fall into that. It's this really kind of uh, fetishization of authenticity that ends yeah. up being really inauthentic. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Which is why making authenticity the governing virtue that explains all the virtues is a failed endeavor, I would think. Mm. Yeah. Um. You said you had a couple of thoughts. Did we kind of address your thoughts that emerged after reading this article? Or was there anything more about like Kotzko and, and the issue of like dealing with a philosopher and their theory and stuff like that that you wanted to, to get into? I mean, I don't think so. I think that is an interesting thing to think about um, because it's a thing we, especially if um, you're talking about philosophers in the canon, right? Whether it be the historical canon or even the more contemporary 20th century one, what do you do with, with the things that you think don't fit well? 
Yeah. Um, do you try to explain them away? Do you try to fit them into the larger narrative really holistically? Do you try to problematize it? Uh, I think, honestly, I mean, it's Costco is, I think, one of our, our, our best contemporary thinkers. So I think he did a really impressive job, even just in a short little piece, with problematizing in a way that is nuanced and creates complexity, but also reveals Right. Mm. Because it, I think it, at least for me, it really helped me think about um, some of the weaknesses that I think are inherent to this mode of um, kind of political and social philosophy, while also pointing out that there's really important strengths um, that I, and, and points that I share um, and that I owe a debt to and having read a lot of the Agambenian and Heideggerian stuff. So, I thought that was really great. Problematizing, making more complex, but also revealing is like if you can do that in a you know thousand word article or whatever, then you've you've done your fucking job, right? So that's good shit. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so as I what, said, do you have any last thoughts on that, Wayne? No, I don't think so. I think we've pretty much covered everything. I um, I, I guess for me, one of the interesting things is just uh, I'll just kind of like say it and then we just put an ellipsis on it is like what is the connection between someone's kind of theoretical output and how they apply it like is it necessarily like does this Mm -hmm. does his maybe less than um valuable political applications does it invalidate his theoretical work right or does it just reveal certain limits the interesting thing is is for me before covid started i had already had like i said you know a really important thinker say to me that they found those limits there and then for me what's interesting then is once Hmm. you usually run up against your limits then it's kind of like there's a leap right or if other people are saying hey there's this like now obviously we all have limits right and so all of us are going to kind of fall into this trap but if there's something that's like really glaringly obvious that that other people are exploring that you know the history of thought the history of thought that you engage in that they are exploring and you are kind of either willfully ignoring it or you're giving short shrift to it what i wonder is and this is you know namely like the critique of political economy which i think is really lacking in agamben then what i wonder is is um, when you then make that leap, right, into kind of like, here's my critique, here's my critique, and then here's the offering, it seems like it's a bigger leap, right? So the more that there are gaps in your sort of theoretical critique, then it seems that the larger leap you have to make when making the application. And so that's why I think the the leap is a very romantic one with a capital R for Agamben, because he just, I think in a weird way, maybe there's a way to like, kind of like critique yourself into an offering rather than critique, critique, critique. And then you have to like force yourself into an offering. And I think for him, he kind of like falls into that latter one, right? Which is why I'm really interested in like Deleuze Guattari because for me it's a critique but that in the critique is always an offering right or why Sartre is so interesting for me particularly in critique of dialectical reason I think in his early works it wasn't his early work he's a fucking romantic right like existentialism <laughs> is thoroughly romantic and that's appealing to me but then there's something in the critique of dialectical reason where he starts to give you these these ways to critique and critique and critique and then in the critique it's almost like oh my god there's there's a way forward that like it kind of just organically connects to it, right? And um, I think that that's a much richer and maybe safer path to take because then you have a landing pad with you all along rather than relying on just some sort of like ideal jump, 
right? And I think for a Gombin, he doesn't give you that landing pad. And and I think that there's something maybe inherently flawed in his work all along that I I hadn't really been attuned to as much until Martine mentioned that to me. And then maybe even more now as I'm kind of starting to think critically about his other work um, in relation to the kind of pandemic. So, yeah, I think that's the last thing I would say. Yeah, if that makes sense. Yeah, there is some sense just to kind of, you know, tie a bow on this where, you know, philosophers are naturally critics. Like there's something about the job, the vocation, right, where you're going to be doing more criticism probably than anything else, mm. right? Even like the great the great synthesis philosophers like, like a Hegel, right? Um, he's doing criticism the whole time. Like it's almost synthesis through criticism, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, it's like a productive criticism. And so that's... That's the thing, right, is can you take that mode of being largely critical, but then make it a productive criticism where some degree of synthesis falls out of it? Yeah. And that's that's hard to do because it's riskier, right? It's harder to do. It's easier to critique because there's a lot more bad shit than good shit <laughs> in the world. So it's easier to critique in the negative sense and doing the productive form of criticism where at least, uh, you know, some degree of, of synthesis falls out or maybe it just falls out like a passive way, but it actually, you know, is completed. Um, it's tougher to do and it's riskier and you're more likely to, to fuck up and be wrong. Um, hmm. So, yeah, I think the the real great thinkers are the ones who are able to to combine, you know, a largely critical enterprise with synthesis. I mean, there's a reason why Hegel is the, is the you know, the great Satan of all 20th century philosophers, right, from various stripes mm-hmm. because... He'd risked a lot more by doing a lot more synthesis. Yeah. Um, which is both a virtue and a vice uh, of Hegel's. So, yeah, I mean, it's as like an overview of like the philosophical vocation. I think that's an interesting thing to think about. Yeah. And it'll be really curious to see what this means for Gombin's legacy. You know, um, is it going to be the sort mm. of thing where people are going to be like, oh, you know, yeah, we read his early stuff, but then, you know, towards the end of his life there, he did fall off the rails a little bit. Or is this going to somehow contaminate it for future generations where people are going to kind of fall out of love with the value of what it was that he was saying because they ultimately think he doesn't really leave them with much. And I think people, as much as they enjoy critique, there will always be people who will enjoy critique, 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 critique. Um, They also want to be offered something. They want to be given something that they can hold on to, that they can create with. And the question is, is, does he have enough resources to create with in his theoretical critical work? I still think yes, but I think it's important to kind of wrestle with that question. And I think that's exactly what Kotzko's uh, article, I think that's kind of what he was was ultimately wrestling with, is to what extent yeah. are we going to con- still continue to turn to this figure who has been so influential in in his life, Kotzko's life, and then even I would say in my life in so many ways. Um, and so that's the question, is, is to what extent are we going to still rely on him and engage in him, you know? So... Yeah, hopefully it is more wrestling with the tensions than it is dismissing the crank. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, so um, we will post the the essay uh, down below. It's short, you know. It's like a you know five minute read, um, and it's written in Slate, so it's meant for you know consumption for anybody to to, to check it out. So mm-hmm. um, really well written, and if you're not familiar with Kotzko's work, I, I can't recommend his stuff enough. He's got like like high theory stuff um, that he's written, and then he's also written some really great books on neoliberalism um, the past couple of years, and then he has some books in between when he was writing for like zero books on like fuck it absurdism and psychopaths and shit like that. What, what else did he write what were they yeah the sociopaths book and awkwardness awkwardness yeah that's what it was yeah 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 
So yeah, you can check those out that are kind of fun. So, all right, dude, wrap that madness up. Yeah. Yep. All right. So now we're moving to the sticky leaves segment of the podcast. And for all you out there, you know, sticky leaves is where we talk about whatever it is that's granting us meaning in a potentially meaningless universe. So Austin, what's doing it for you this week? And just just because our producer mentioned this to us and was like, where, what's the origin of Sticky Leaves? And if there are people who've been listening to us more recently and they haven't heard it, can you just talk about the origin of Sticky Leaves before I give you my Sticky Leaf? Yeah, so in short, uh, my favorite novel is The Brothers Karamazov by Fyodor Dostoevsky. And in it, uh, the middle brother of the titular brothers, uh, Ivan talks about uh, in a, like a long diatribe about meaning and meaninglessness and atheism and spirituality and everything else. Uh, he mentions that the thing that he finds any solace in or any hint of meaning in is uh, walking on the sticky leaves on a Sunday morning. I believe it's a Sunday morning. Um, and it's kind of a poetic, uh, a poetic way of, of recognizing the potential for utter meaninglessness, but also this, this call towards meaning that you still have in you as a, as a human individual who strives for something greater than the universe gives you. So that's real high minded. And we usually just talk about like shit we like, but Hey, we're philosophers. So <laughs> we like to, you know, be a little bit extravagant about things. That's right. That's right. So uh, well, a little extra. Yeah. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about camper vans. Uh, I talked about building some shelves and <laughs> stuff like that in my house this week. I'm going to talk about the, a- the camper vans is one of your all time. Great. Austin <laughs> moments. I got to say in retrospect, <laughs> I've had people hit me up on Twitter and say, go get that camper van, bro. I, I, thank you. <laughs> thank you. I love you. And I appreciate you for encouraging me. Um, so my <laughs> sticky leaves this week is I totally missed the boat on this TV show, but my partner was, has been talking about it for ages. Like you got to check this fucking show out. You got to check it and I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, sometimes it's daunting to start a new show, you know, you know, time constraints and there's other things and there's just so much content out there. But I finally have started it. We're five episodes in now into the night of now. Oh, so good. Yeah, dude. From the very first episode, like she was laughing at me because I was like commenting while it's happening. I was like, oh, dude, don't do that. No. I was like, oh, bro. I was like, oh, shit. And then it's just the way that it creates <laughs> tension is so marvelous. And for me, one of my one of the things that, that hurts me more than anything in the world is being falsely accused of something or not having the information and then mm-hmm. people making leaps about it. And now I don't know, like, don't say anything. Cause obviously I'm only five episodes in, like maybe he did actually spoilers, by the way. I mean, it, I mean, it's like six years old. So, <laughs> um, but like maybe he did do it and he just like blacked out and he didn't realize that he did. It. I mean, who, who fucking knows? Maybe he had that rage in him that came back. I mean, I have no fucking clue. They're setting this up. Maybe it was one of these other figures. Like in my mind, I'm skeptical. I don't think he did it. And I think what's going to be interesting is seeing his transformation as somebody accused um, and living in the prison life and kind of for, for the need to survive the actions that he's taking in prison and how that's going to change him so that maybe if he does get exonerated, um, it's going to, it's going to kind of reveal how much, um, the kind of the, the corruption of the criminal justice system and, um, the, the need to manufacture a story as being primary rather than seeking a quote unquote truth and how that's going to have an impact on him and, and his narrative and his identity and things like that. So there's something also amazing about story. And anyway, the acting is, is, is brilliant for people who don't know it's John Turturro and Riz Ahmed, um, 
are kind of like the two mains. Turturro is so good in it, dude. Yeah, well, so that's what <laughs> that's what my partner was saying. She was like, that's like one of her favorite TV characters ever. And I was like, really? I'm like, I, I, why? And then it's so funny because, you know, he's got this like foot issue that's like fucking gnarly, <laughs> gnarly psoriasis. And everyone's always like, hey, man, how the feet, how the feet. And then the moment it's like it's like episode two or three. He like walks by this shoe store and there are these shoes and he just looks longingly at them. And you just like your heart breaks. You're like, what? And what amazing like storytelling too. like. All he has to do is mm. walk by the window and look at a shoe and you know everything because he can't put fucking shoes on and all he wants is to wear shoes. And then he takes this fucking like Chinese medicine and it heals his feet. I have a feeling it's going to come back though, right? Like you can't, it's, we're only, you, you know, we're halfway through. You can't have like, something's going to happen like where his feet are going to be fucked up, I think. Um, but he takes this stuff and his feet are better and he was able to wear shoes and he's so goddamn proud when he goes into the day of court and he's got fucking shoes on, right? Like, like, I don't know. He's it's amazing. And then he's got this relationship with this cat, you know, that he's adopted. It's the victim's cat. And and right now it's only mm-hmm. temporary, but he's starting to slowly like it's like he's allergic to cats. And at first he's like super distant. And now he's starting to get a little bit more playful and getting the cat more things. And I don't know. There's just a lot that's interesting to chew on with his character. But the show's fantastic. I don't know why it took me so long to get into it because I love Riz Ahmed. So you would think that I'd be drawn to it. And I love John Turturro. So why would I not? But it just took me a while. But well, it's, you know, you- it's great. You know, you know, Richard Price, right? The the creator of the show? Mm, no, maybe. Yeah, he was one of the, the lead writers on The Wire, first oh, of all. OK. Yeah. And he also did um, the series a, a couple of years ago called The Outsider with Ben Mendelsohn. Did you ever see that? Oh, I never did. But I love Ben Mendelsohn. Yeah, it's, it's good. Uh, it's, it's adapted from a Stephen King novel, I believe. OK. So it does eventually become a Stephen King novel which all end the same way right <laughs> um so it, i don't think it had like the greatest uh denouement which the night of is, is fantastic all the way through it, it's, it's definitely superior but you, you watch the outsider at some point um because it's, it's got all the richard price great storytelling elements to it up until the end and the end's not terrible or anything but it's, it's stephen kingy yeah um yeah R- richard price i think is probably like one of our our greatest uh, TV writers at this point, like everything he does is so exquisite. And like, you can, you can really, you get so involved in every moment of, of the story in a way that TV shows oftentimes are like, they're just trying to get somewhere, you know? Mm. And with, with prices stuff, it's always like, it's always every, every episode is its own little story that you're fully enmeshed in. And it's, it's just so rare nowadays. I really appreciate that. Yeah, it's tough because there's just so much freaking content and people are just trying to push out story and we have the formulas for how to tell stories. So when something really fresh comes along, it really stands out. It's just hard to to, yeah. to get them, right? So you just have to kind of like trust other people that are like, hey, we found a fresh thing. And then you just got to make sure you add that to the top of your list. I guess that's the way forward, right? That's what you got to do. Yeah. Yeah. So. I'll be curious. Make sure that when you finish the night of you, you talk, at least talk with me about it. It's not on the podcast. Okay. Yeah, I will. You're you're allowed. I am now. I am now making an official rule for Owls of Dawn that you're allowed to have two sticky leaves that are the same in a row. If okay, it's because you're adding new content to it. Maybe what I'll do is for my next sticky leaves, which will be in two episodes. Maybe what I'll do is I'll give you like a double sticky leaves. I'll just be like, hey, by the way, I wrapped it up. Amen. Let's talk about it for five minutes, and then I'll transition into my second. I don't know. We'll see. It's my sticky leaves, so I can kind yeah, of do dude. it, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's our podcast, dude. We make the rules. <laughs> 
I love it. But yeah, it's great. I'm hooked. I'm into it. Um, it makes me want to watch other stuff that um, I haven't seen that I've been neglecting, but that people have been telling me to watch for ages because I'm like, oh, yeah, I should just fucking trust people. Um, but you know what it also does, too? It kind of like reinvigorates me and makes me only want to consume like good content. You know, like I know I, I've, I've probably said, but like it like mm -hmm. it like makes me really want to just find like good quality stuff. Like just like we need better we need better signposts to like point us in the direction of good content, you know, or maybe I need better yeah, the, ones. No, dude, you're right. There, there's so much stuff. Like, there's a lot of shit, obviously, but there's so much stuff that's just like, yeah, this is good enough. But like, I don't really right. care. Right. I'm not really invested. And then you kind of feel like, well, yeah, it's good enough, though. So I got to keep going. And there's just so much of that, just merely competent stuff. But then you don't give it, you don't give enough attention to the really excellent stuff. Yeah. That actually makes you invigorated. And you're like, yeah, this is the shit. I want to think about this and talk about it when it's over. It doesn't immediately exit my mind. Yeah. And part of the reason is because of public pressure, too, because everybody's talking about Euphoria or everyone's talking about whatever the mm -hmm. show is that's out. And I'm sure Euphoria is good. I'm sure there's stuff. I'm sure it's interesting. I don't know. I don't want to critique it. But it's like they're talking about Euphoria and we started Yellow Jackets and then we just haven't gotten back to it. But I hear that's great. Like, I, I want to get it. But I just the, everyone's just talking. And I think we kind of we, we so want to like be included and participate in what things are talking about, or we hear people's excitement and we're like, oh my God, it must, I, I got to check it out. And uh, I, I just, we need, maybe this is when machine learning will come in. Maybe the new AI machine learning technologies will help us to like better, have better, um, what is it? Like uh, filtering systems. That will then then feed us really high quality stuff. And now I'm nah, nope. No, no, okay. <laughs> it's just gonna feed us the, the the garbage that everyone thinks is merely competent. That's what it's gonna do, dude. <laughs> well, like I, I watched I watched Yellow Jackets. It was good. I enjoyed it, right? I I mean, fuck if I watched it like a few weeks ago. Fuck if I could tell you anyone's name in that show at this point. Uh, okay. Right? Yeah. But like Station Eleven, Night of. That shit st will stick with me forever. Yeah, that's it, isn't it? That's it. And you know what else is tough, too? Because I am involved in the acting community, actors have a different taste on what they like and what they consume. And a lot mm. of it is about, like, performances, characters, drama, big story, like, um, genre stuff. Whereas for me... I'm an actor, but I still like I would rather watch a Godard film, right? <laughs> so like <laughs> which isn't about performance and character and story. And so that's another thing, too, is I feel like the way that we talk about good cinematic storytelling or good TV storytelling is oftentimes influenced by people being interested in character and, and the big things. And especially if you're in the like in the arts at all, then then those communities are even going to inform even more the type of kind of um, what's the word I'm looking for, the kinds of suggestions or recommendations that you're getting. Right. So um, so I think that's also I don't know, like, yeah, 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 yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's not the kind of thing you can determine with popular consensus. No, 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 no. You know what else I also recently watched that was really good? And this is the last thing I'm going to say. I watched Force Majeure. Oh, yeah, that's a great movie. Yeah, it was fucking great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's been so, did, didn't they do a remake of it with um, Will Ferrell and Julia Louis-Dreyfus? Oh, my God, I don't am know. I, am I imagining that? 
I don't know. I think that happened. <laughs> Did it happen? Yeah, I think it happened, and I think it was awful. <laughs> I didn't know about it. Shit. Unless I'm misremembering. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen some good stuff lady, or lately. I watched uh, The Worst Person in the World. I watched Force Majeure. I watched The... Oh, ne- I want to watch that. It, How was Worst Person in the World? You, you, well, maybe we'll have to do an episode on it. It's pretty good. It's... Uh, so, um, the director, um, I forget his first name, uh, but his last name's Trier, um, like as in Lars von Trier, but it's not Lars von Trier. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's Joachim, Joachim Trier. Um, anyway, he said that basically the kind of guiding motif of the story is that great Kierkegaard quote that, you know, um, that he's kind of like the sad fact of it is, is that, uh, you understand your life, uh, at the end of your life and you understand it backwards, but unfortunately you have to live it forwards. Sort of and thing. like to live forwards, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So there's something interesting. I gotta watch it now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, he's fucking Danish Norwegian, so it's it's all it's that kind of shit, man. It's that world. But mm. I think I think you'll dig it. So. Oh yeah, I want to watch that, and I really want to watch Drive My Car. That's the other one. Um, yeah, I think I think we're doing Drive yeah. My Car on the podcast uh, on Show Me the Meaning podcast. So I think I'll be forced to watch it because I think it's coming. Okay. It's coming to HBO Max soon, right? So. Oh okay. I think so. I think it'll be pretty readily available for people, and so I think we'll we'll be doing that. But yeah, 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 yeah. I've heard so many great things. So same. All right, sick. Well, let's go ahead and wrap up the episode there. Thank you all, as always, for tuning in. Make sure to give us a follow on Twitter, owls underscore at underscore dawn, or on Insta. Also, check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash owls at dawn. Throw us some pennies if you can. We've got some bonus content there. One of these days, we'll be uploading some new stuff. Have we have we reached a consensus on what the, um, what the options are for the next patron chosen topic, by the way? Not yet. We still need some more recommendations so okay. if you're a patron please go there and uh suggest some topics for us to possibly address and if you're not a patron and you want to be then get over to patreon.com slash owls dawn and suggest some topics yeah just rush over there we need we probably need like eight to choose from so that we can whittle it down to like three or four so we can run a poll so uh if, yeah. you, if you haven't suggested one Go suggest one, please. Uh, it really makes it easier for us so that we can have multiple options to suggest. Um, and then next week, we will announce what the poll is, and then we'll run a poll for a week or two, and then we'll do the episode. So, okay, check that shit out. Thank you so much. We got to get out of here. I think that's pretty much everything, unless there's anything I forgot to say. Uh, you didn't forget to say it, but there's one more thing I can think of that I haven't said yet. Oh, what do we got to say? Das Verdammt, Amerikanski. <laughs> <laughs>